0: Think back to a natural disaster that you've seen on animals out of the danger zone. Okay, you got that picture in your mind? Now imagine decorating your child's nursery with that new story. That'd be weird, right? That'd be strange. But that's exactly what people do with Noah's Ark. It's a weird, dark, disturbing story. Um, but I don't know why it's become, we think of it like a children's story. The story of Noah though is not a Sunday school colorful story about animals taking a boat ride It's about the end of the world. It's about tens of thousands of people dying and it's about the wrath of God And yet the story of Noah is also the story of about uh, a story about trees and imagery of trees It's about God's judgment and cataclysmic death and destruction and yet it's also a story about trees and peace and how god is for us and isn't going to destroy us last week we kicked off a new series about the imagery of trees in the bible next to god and humans trees are the most uh, often mentioned living thing in the bible they're mentioned even more than animals trees are on the first page of the bible and on the very last page of The Bible and the biblical authors mention trees in every major story of the Bible at every critical moment when God says this is who I am This is how I'm going to act towards humanity when he makes promises to humans about who he is and how he's going to behave There's always a tree that shows up. So for the next few weeks, we're in this series Where we're exploring the curious case of trees why the biblical authors are so obsessed with trees and tree imagery and we're examining these promises given in and around trees with the hope that re-examining these promises of god will encourage us and sustain us in the hard moments of life and this week we're looking at the next major story last week we looked at the garden of eden and now we're looking at the story of noah and we're going to talk about a major tree in this story but we're not going to talk about the tree that built the ark That's not our main focus anyways, but I think we at least have to mention it look in genesis chapter 6 verses 11 through 14 Now the earth was corrupt in god's sight and was full of violence And god saw, saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways And so god said to noah i'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. Now, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading from, there could be some different words in there instead of cypress wood. Because the Hebrew word used here is a really obscure word, and scholars debate what it means. If you're reading in a King James translation, it's going to say an ark of gopher wood. Um, and growing up, I would read that, and I imagine, like, there was this tree with just gophers sticking out of it, you know? Like, maybe they had little hard hats on, and they helped build the ark. I don't know, you know? Um, I I imagine them something like the Doozers from Fraggle Rock. Anybody watch Fraggle Rock as a kid? Old kids, you know? Um, that's, I imagine like the, you know, maybe gophers came out of this wood and helped him build the ark. I don't know. All the pictures they showed me of Noah's ark, all the animals were smiling. You know, Noah was happy. It wasn't anything like the story actually in the Bible. Gopher wood, though, is a bad English translation. Um, most scholars think the word is probably a term used for wood that's been covered in pitch, like tar, to make it waterproof, or cypress wood, which is how the NIV translates it. Here there's no such thing as gopher wood. This isn't an ancient lost tree That's really good for building arcs or that got filled with gophers and hard hats that help you build things It's not what it is Now before we get to the tree, I want to talk about today I really feel like we have to talk about the elephant in the room in the story of Noah Um, God wipes out the planet in this story And I can't just brush that off and go on. I'd like to I'd like to just avoid that Um, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel very uncomfortable Like that's not a passage where i'm like i'm having a hard day i'm gonna read about god wiping out the planet, you know Um a few weeks ago. I talked about how god shouldn't be blamed for natural disasters So what's different here? Well, first off god makes it very clear that this is his doing This isn't just something that's happened because we're in a broken system This isn't something the devil is doing. This is something he's doing as a direct result of what people have done and second, he tells us why he's doing it. He says it multiple times. He's doing it because the earth is filled with violence. People just kept killing each other over and over. And finally, he's like, fine, if that's what humanity wants to just kill itself, I'm gonna take my hands off creation and let it return to an uncreated state. In the ancient Israelite cosmology, their way of thinking about the universe and how all the creation works together, they imagine the earth as being built over a sea or a void. In the beginning of genesis, we have god hovering over the waters, this void to create life and order out of the nothingness And here we have god removing his hands of order and stability and letting creation return to an uncreated state a watery void It's just going back to this empty watery state. So some quick notes about god's judgment Because anytime god's judgment comes up in scripture, he always provides a way to escape judgment It's never an unescapable judgment because he is merciful because he is slow to anger He always gives a warning and a way to avoid it It says that noah built the ark for hundreds of years and no one asked to join him They avoided every possible reminder that judgment might be coming Peter in second peter 2 5 says if god did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people But protected noah who preached to them about what was right And seven others his family and so peter here is saying that noah was preaching to them He was telling them. Hey, there's a judgment coming. You need to change. You need to turn change directions Build another boat join us in building this one do something But they avoided every possible reminder that judgment might be coming um as modern educated westerners Any discussion of God's wrath kind of makes me feel uncomfortable and probably makes you feel uncomfortable I squirm a little as I read it. I don't like it. It doesn't seem very Jesusy to me But justice demands a response to evil Revenge is selfish selfish, but justice is about doing what is right for the victim and what is right for potential future victims Forgiveness doesn't mean you don't pursue justice Sometimes we get that messed up in our culture and in our churches forgiveness means you will pursue justice without corrupting your own heart with thoughts of revenge on earth. We're crying out for justice and God answered and brought the violence to an end. Um, There's this movie I like about foster care and it's called instant family and there's this husband and wife and they want to adopt these two cute kids in foster care, but they're, they have to be adopted with the whole family and they have an older teenage sister. And they're like, we really don't want a teenager, but you know, it's a package deal, so we'll take her. And over time, uh, they all start bonding. But in the story of the movie, uh, this creepy janitor at school starts texting inappropriate pictures to the teenage daughter and Mark Wahlberg plays the foster dad in the movie and he finally finds out about this. And uh, so him and the mom go and confront this guy And this teenage girl has never had anyone watch out for her or protect her or stand up for her She's always just been on her own and mark Wahlberg goes finds this sleazy guy in the school Confronts him punches him in the face and says if you ever touch our daughter or look at our daughter Come after our daughter again. We're gonna kill you And he's been this quiet almost passive guy the entire movie And then when his daughter is threatened he gets violent to protect her God's violence is like that It's a protective violence. He's never violent because it's his nature. He's only violent when he's coming to protect the powerless and the oppressed, when he's coming to deal out justice for the marginalized and the manipulated. Was it violent to destroy the earth with a flood? Yes, that's a violent act. But humans had killed thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children who were crying out and saying, God, are you going to do something? Are you going to end this violence? Are you going to stop it? Often what I find is I want it both ways. I complain when God is slow to act But I also complain when he acts in a way I don't approve of we can't have it both ways Okay That's heavy and I could preach a whole series on the wrath of God and judgment and balancing that with his mercy and grace But that's not what we're here to talk about today Let's move on to the tree that we're here to focus on today in genesis chapter 8 verse 6 After 40 days, Noah opened a window he made in the ark, and he sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark, and he reached out his hand, and he took the dove, and he brought it back into himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. And when the dove returned to, him in, in, returned to him in the evening, in his beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Now Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. Anybody want to guess what kind of tree we're going to talk about today? What's going to An olive tree, that's right. Everybody like whispers, just Um, In ancient Middle Eastern and Mediterranean culture, the olive branch represented peace. Most scholars believe it goes back to the oral tradition of the story even before it was written down. That heaven stopped its assault on earth. That God declared peace between heaven and earth and the floods came to an end. If the flood was an act of God's uncreation, the reemergence of the olive tree above the waters was a sign of God's recreation of God being at peace with humanity. The symbol of the olive tree as a symbol of peace is really universal. You can go to cultures all over the world. If they had olive trees, it was always used as a symbol of peace. In Greek, in Greek culture, olive reefs were worn by brides and awarded to Olympic victors. The Roman poet Virgil associated the plump olive with the goddess Pax, the goddess of peace. And the olive branch was used as a symbol of peace. Roman envoys would carry olive branches as tokens of peace, and olive branches adorned their coins and banners after they won a victory. In modern times, we still use olive branches to convey peace. On the great seal of the United States, there is an eagle grasping an olive branch. The emblem in the flag of the United Nations bears a pair of stylized olive branches surrounding a world map. We say when we have a friend that maybe we had a disagreement with and we're trying to pass things up We're extending an olive branch The olive branch also appears with the dove in early christian art the dove derives from the uh, Picture of the holy spirit in the gospels the early christians often attempted to artistically represent peace in death on their tombs By depicting the figure of a dove bearing an olive branch in its beak. We have a picture of an ancient christian tomb here you have the alpha and the omega the Rho, the initials for jesus a communion cup and look a dove representing the spirit with a olive branch the olive tree was one of the most important trees in ancient israel and in the ancient near east here's some of the uses the bible tells us olive trees were used for um, they were used for food in Nehemiah 9, for lamp oil in Exodus 27, for medicine in Isaiah 1, um, anointing oil in 1 Samuel 10, sacrificial oil in Leviticus 2, and furniture wood in 1 Kings chapter 6. The olive tree is extremely slow-growing. It takes years of patient labor to reach full fruitfulness, where it's actually producing olives. And while it's well-suited to the Middle Eastern climates, Um, The tree ended up playing a significant role in the region's economy The outer flesh of the oval-shaped fruit is what yields the highly valuable commodity of olive oil And this is where things get really interesting as you look at how this tree shows up in the bible The anointing oil used to anoint priests and kings in the old testament was made out of olive oil mixed with spices mentioned in the genesis description of eden And so this anointing oil this blend of seasoned olive oil was used to anoint priests as god's special agents Of spiritual peace and kings as god's special agents of physical peace the word messiah The word that we use for jesus Christ is literally the greek translation of messiah. It literally means one anointed with oil. So, I argue that in each of the major stories in the Bible, in this series I'm arguing that each of them include a mention of a tree and a promise that reveals the character and nature of God. So what's the promise here? What's the promise that we get with the olive tree, the olive branch, this olive leaf? I think this is the promise. God is at peace with you and wants you to be at peace with now, it's easy sometimes, and it's amazing how many people I talk to who assume that God is out to get them. Have you ever met anyone like this, or maybe you felt like this? I felt like this this year. I had a Vespa accident. Uh, we had a failed adoption. The other day, I got some coffee here at Starbucks across the street, came over here, immediately poured it on myself, and I have burns on my chest now from this coffee being super hot. Um, what's that? It was too hot. It really was. Um, The lid came off, and I just poured it down my chest, and I I now have burns on my chest. And I'm like, what is this year? I've broken so many things. I've dropped so many things. The other day, I got stuck in an elevator here when I was moving a piece of furniture. It broke and leaned over on me in the elevator, and I had to call the elevator repairman to get me out. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? Am I cursed? Is is god against me what's going on? Um, this week a pastor met with me over here for coffee right up the street at lancaster And as we're talking and he's praying for me About my failed adoption and just praying uh, A bus drives by and rips the mirror off his truck where he's parked uh, Along the street and it feels a little bit like I have a giant bullseye on my back and anyone who gets too close might get hit So if you want to move back a row, I understand Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like the universe is out to get you. God's out to get you He's angry with you. He hates you. He's at war with you I grew up hearing a very divergent story that the bad things in your life was either, either the devil out to get you Or god trying to get your attention or trying to punish you for something you did God doesn't use calamity to talk to us He's at peace with us because of jesus his preferred method of communication is the holy spirit the scriptures and other human beings made in his image pain is not a postcard from god love is beauty is joy is that's how he talks to you that's how he sends messages here's what god said after noah saw the olive branch he landed the ark offered a burnt sacrifice and departed onto the dry ground this is what god says in genesis 8 21 through 22 and the lord smelled the pleasing aroma And said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never God declared peace between us and heaven. The obedience of one family who went into the waves on a boat brought peace to the world. And the obedience of one man, Jesus, who went down into the water and the dove hovered over him brought peace to us all when he went to the cross. Tertullian, the early church father about 100 years after Jesus, compared Noah's dove, who he said announced to the world the end of divine wrath, When she had been sent out of the ark and returned with the olive branch He compared that with the holy spirit who in baptism brings us the peace of god sent out from the heavens And the olive tree comes up again in the story of jesus not just in his baptism right before his death He goes to pray in a garden on the mount of olives um, An olive grove on the rocky hillside of jerusalem and you can still go to that spot today If you go to jerusalem, you can go to this garden on the mount of Of olives and there are still olive trees there today that are producing olives There's some of the oldest trees in the world They're over a thousand years old that they've documented so they could be even older But they've at least documented that these are the same trees for at least a thousand years And when jesus went to this garden, he was wrestling with the weight of the incredible death He was about to die as he swallows sin and death and defeats the devil And here's what happens in luke chapter 22 Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, so apparently this was a custom. He went there often to pray, and his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. And this is what he said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not what I want, but your will be done. To get olive oil, the olive has to be crushed, just like Jesus had to be crushed for his blood to rescue us from sin And death god's not mad at you He's not torturing you or punishing you He sent his son to be tortured in our place to be punished in our place. So we might be called the righteousness of god We have peace with god because of jesus Jesus was squeezed to bring peace between heaven and earth God isn't punishing you for your sin when you stub your toe when something terrible happens. That's not how god works The hard things in your life aren't some vindictive move to make us pay for our mistakes He came so that we might know peace Not so that we would live in constant fear and anxiety about what we might have done wrong and what might be coming next God doesn't hold a club over our head because he went to a cross to offer peace to us instead Over the last few weeks darby and I have felt incredible anxiety Um, If this can happen, if we can love a little girl and then she can be taken away in a moment, what else can go wrong? Maybe there's something in your life. You lost a loved one, something, a dream that you thought was going to happen fell apart. Maybe it was a marriage and you're like, man, and my whole life was built around that and now it's gone. If you're like us, you felt like your inner lives are a chaotic sea and you're clinging to a board being tossed about on the raging waves. And if you're like us, you want to know peace. You want to believe that God is with you and for you. So how do we do that? Like if Jesus offers peace, if there's peace between God and us, how do we experience that? How do we feel that? How do we live in that? What do you do when you don't feel peace, when your soul feels like it is just a raging sea and you're barely clinging on? Jewish rabbi and family therapist Edwin Friedman coined the phrase a non-anxious presence. To describe an individual who provides a calm cool focused and collected environment that empowers others to be relaxed and that's how i imagine jesus he's someone that when you're around him you just calm down in fact when asked to describe jesus with one word dallas willard famously said relaxed I want that to be true of me i want to be a non-anxious presence i want to be someone who lives in the peace of god both at peace in the world and helps others be at peace too but how do we get there Um, i think there's some practical things that we can learn from jesus the night he prayed among the olive trees these symbols of god's peace in the garden of gethsemane on the mount of olives so here's the three things first surrender what you want Um, Jesus in the garden wrestles with the cosmic reality about what he's about to do And what he ultimately says is not my will father, but what you want Dallas Willard again defines peace as a resting of our will that comes from the Divine assurance that at the end of things everything will ultimately turn out right a surrender of the story we want And an acceptance of the story we are in. And so experiencing peace starts with surrender, and that's hard. I want to rail and fight against the story I'm in because I don't like it, and it's not the story I wanted. Often we think about freedom as having the power to do whatever we want, to get whatever we want. But Ignatius understood freedom differently. For him, human freedom was a freedom to grow in relationship with God and share in God's redemptive work. ...not to get everything we want. Uh, Ignatius called this... ...internal freedom... ...being free from being controlled... ...by our dreams and desires. He called this practicing spiritual indifference. And what he meant by that was not uh, apathy. He does not mean that we don't care. Um, One can be indifferent... in, in, ...in the way that Ignatius thought... ...and yet be deeply passionate. In fact, he said, since God is love... ...and God's redemptive work takes place... ...through love, we cannot be indifferent... In the sense that he means, unless we love and love deeply. But indifference means that when we lose the people we love, the life we love, the story we thought we were in, we can still find ways to love God and love other people. Because everything is a gift, and no one and nothing ever belongs to us. Every beloved person and every good creation belongs to God, including ourselves. Learning this and accepting this is the key to indifference. Because everything can be lost except the love that Jesus has for me And it is the bedrock from which we find our peace. We navigate our loss and we choose to love again When the devil rages and my life is filled with tragedy and chaos darkness doesn't win Peace prevails because the love of Jesus prevails. I can know peace because I know him and he's the prince of peace So take some time this week to thank god for what you have But also take some time to remind yourself that you do not have as much control in your life as you think You don't get to hold on to things just because you grip them tighter We think control will bring us peace, but it does the opposite Peace comes when we sit down with god and we surrender our desire for control to him Because we believe at the end of the story. He will make all things right So first surrender second Gather with non-anxious people. Jesus invited his disciples to join him in the garden and pray Community seemed to be an important element for him as he faced his looming death and studies tell us we can catch peace from people Just like we can catch anxiety from people You probably have some friends or family members or co-workers who just give off an anxious vibe You know you hang out with people and you're like They just make me anxious. There's a teacher here at the art center, and when she comes in, the whole staff just gets anxious because she's like, she's all over the place, and something's always wrong, and something small will happen, like a blind will be broken, and it's the end of the world. You know, her whole class is ruined, and it's like, she's so anxious, we all get a little bit more anxious. Studies have shown that just listening to an anxious person talk makes everyone else's heart rate in the room go up, makes it elevate. At the same time, you probably know people who make you feel calm and secure and seen and safe and comfortable. These non-anxious presences are what we want to become like. And one of the ways we do that is by being around people like that. One of the reasons we gather as a church is because this should be a gathering of non-anxious people It should be a safe and secure place where we are safe and secure in the love of jesus and the kingdom of god And it should be like a breath of fresh air in your week You should come away feeling at peace and prepared to face the anxiety that exists out there Uh, This week, I encourage you make a list of people who make you feel at peace Spend some time with them get some coffee go on a hike Not everything is learned in lectures I think the most important lessons are learned through being present with people. So first, surrender. Two, surround yourself with a community of non-anxious people. And three, pray. Jesus went to the garden to pray. Feeling anxiety, his first impulse was to spend time with his father in prayer. Um, Over the last few weeks, I said last week that I've been praying breath prayers as I struggle with anxiety about our failed adoption. Uh, we ended our service with one last week and we're going to end one uh, the service today with one as well Although we didn't have time to unpack it this morning There's a clear connection between the spirit of god coming into people or on people who have been anointed with oil in the bible In the new testament jesus promises the spirit the holy spirit to all who become his disciples And it's no accident that the spirit appears like a dove in the baptism of jesus clearly linking back to the story of noah One of the fruits of the spirit is peace. And if you've never thought about it before, that's yet another tree analogy, that the spirit produces a fruit, like a fruit tree. So today, though, we're going to address our prayer for peace directly to the Holy Spirit. And once again, we did this last week, but we are going to breathe in as we say God's name, the Holy Spirit. And then we are going to breathe out as we make our request. So just quietly where you are inside your head, pray along with me. Holy Spirit, breathe in Take our anxiety and our fear and breathe out Holy Spirit, breathe in Calm the storm in us and breathe out Holy Spirit breathe in Fill us with your peace and breathe out Holy Spirit, breathe in Help me bring peace Lord Jesus, thank you that you are with us in the worst moments of our life. We ask that you will bring us peace as we seek you, as we surrender, as we surround ourselves with non-anxious people, and as we just sit with you in prayer. I pray that we will become people of peace, that we will be non-anxious presences, that people will sense that in us is the source of true peace, that people will be drawn to you through us by the supernatural peace that you give us. God, let it not be something we try to manufacture or something we try to fake or create. Let it be something that you're doing in us and through us, that you're, you're producing a supernatural peace and that's the only way we're going to survive. And so we ask, God, that you make us non-anxious presences. People.